Welcome to the 37th episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author and professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His upcoming book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, can be pre-ordered through Amazon Books and Barnes & Noble, and all profits will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Together, we also host the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin this show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What happened and what does it mean? Jeremy, this week we saw a huge divide in terms of COVID-19 between what's happening in the United States and what's happening in the relatively unvaccinated nations like India and Brazil. In India, where the vaccination rate is only 2%, the number of new cases is exceeding 300,000 per day, with the bodies of dead victims piling up so fast that families are having to cremate them in parking lots. Given the shortage of testing kits, the best guess are the actual numbers of cases may be five to 10 times higher. In Brazil, grave diggers are now working across the night to bury the dead. Even in Germany, daily death count has tripled despite increasing governmentally imposed regulations. In total, around the globe, there were 5.7 million confirmed new cases of COVID-19 last week alone. And that means that there's probably 10 to 20 million actual cases each week. In contrast, in the US, despite a growing prevalence of the new, more transmissible variants and easing of restrictions, new cases, hospitalizations, and deaths are on the decline. In fact, in some areas, communities are approaching herd immunity, the point at which the incidence of the virus starts to decline on its own because so many people have either had the disease or been immunized. The contrast in suffering brought massive pressure on the US to release some of its vaccine su surplus. And in response, President Biden announced that the United States would send 60 million doses from the drug maker AstraZeneca to other countries over the next few months. Details on the exact nations expected to receive the doses and the specific timing were not provided. To date, the AstraZeneca vaccine has been approved in most nations but not as yet in the United States Federal Drug Administration. And today the company said that it was having problems completing the necessary paperwork. In addition, the president told India's Prime Minister Modi that the US would be sending medications, testing kits, ventilators, and oxygen tanks to India in an attempt to help the country overcome the current medical difficulties that exist. In other news, the Federal Drug Administration gave, gave its approval for the use of the one-shot Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Already more than a dozen states, including California, Michigan, and New York, have begun using it. The FDA, in reviewing all the data, 
concluded that the risks of receiving the vaccine, including blood clots in younger women, that the risk was far less than the danger of contracting COVID-19. The one-shot-and-done vaccine has a major advantage over the Moderna and Pfizer. Currently, it is estimated that there are at least 5 million people who received either the Pfizer or Moderna two-shot vaccines but failed to come back for their second dose. Although these individuals would have some protection from the initial shot, it would be less than with a single-dose J&J. The multiple factors involved in evaluating the benefits from each vaccine demonstrate how complex the calculus turns out to be in making these types of vaccine decisions and recommendations. Finally, the CDC released new guidelines on the wearing of masks. It said that fully vaccinated people two weeks after the second shot can go outside without a mask unless they will be in a large crowd, such as at a parade, or coming into close contact with large numbers of people. It's important for listeners to understand the thinking. There is a small chance of people who have been vaccinated getting sick, and the likelihood of being exposed rises as they come in contact with more people, many of whom may be unvaccinated, particularly when it's going to be in close proximity. As such, the easing of restrictions reflects a balancing of risks. Just as driving in a car poses a small danger, but one that's felt to be relatively insignificant, assuming that the speed limits are observed. Most policy experts doubt that this new CDC recommendation on the wearing of masks and vaccinated people will change behavior much. The people who are vaccinated probably already are comfortable being outside when there's only a few people around. Public event leaders are unlikely to check the vaccination status as they walk through the crowds watching the parade marchers go by. And unvaccinated people are likely to remain unconcerned about the risks. Having said that, the CDC new recommendations are another step towards offering perks, even if just psychological, to those vaccinated as a means of driving up the rate of immunity and hopefully helping our nation reach herd immunity at some point soon. Robbie, a reader wrote that the information on obesity correlating with higher risk of being hospitalized from COVID-19 was extremely valuable. And they're curious if there's any additional information about the amount of exercise and that correlating with COVID hospitalizations. Jeremy, there is new data that shows the benefits of exercise in helping people avoid severe COVID-19 disease. Researchers looked at 50,000 Californians who developed COVID-19 and asked them about their exercising history just prior to becoming infected. Consistently, those who were the most active were the least likely to be hospitalized or die. And it appeared that a wide range of activities, including walking, running, swimming, and biking, all can have a salutary impact. The assumption is that exercise increases the body's immune system and antibody response. The study period was prior to the availability of the vaccine, so this wasn't a contributing factor. The positive impact of exercise parallels previous research. A study published in February demonstrated that people who could walk quickly 
were less likely to become severely ill when compared to people who walked sluggishly. And the difference held up even when the fast walkers suffered from obesity. Similarly, a study from Europe showed that patients with strong grip strength, a measure of muscular tone, also had a reduced need for hospitalization. The power of the current study from Southern California is that all of the participants had already entered the exercise history prior to the coronavirus pandemic to the Kaiser Permanente electronic health record. As a result, the possibility that the reduced exercise was a result of the infection rather than happening before the infection was eliminated as a possible confounding issue. And the differences in outcome were major. As an example, comparing the high exercise group, and that's defined as 150 minutes per week, to the low exercise group, defined as fewer than 10 minutes per week, the lower exercise group had a two and a half times greater chance of dying even after the health data was corrected for other factors like smoking, age, weight, or history of diabetes and cancer. The lessons cleared when it comes to COVID-19, or for that matter, a huge number of diseases like heart attacks and strokes, walking for half an hour, five times a week is a prescription for better health and longer life. Robbie, in our last show, we talked about vaccinations in younger people. Uh, what's the latest when it comes to college-age students? Jeremy, already over 100 colleges and universities, including Yale and Princeton, are requiring proof of COVID-19 vaccination to return this fall. The latest is the University of California and the California State University system. They will be demanding it for all of their students, faculty, and staff. This will affect over 1 million individuals. Exceptions will be made based on medical or religious grounds, but as dramatic as this requirement to be vaccinated against the coronavirus before coming on campus, remember that most universities already require proof of vaccination for illnesses like chickenpox, measles, and mumps. And relative to the exemptions offered for medical or religious reasons, only 2% of students apply for these at the current time. The new announcement was made in order to give everyone the chance to get vaccinated before the school year begins in the early fall. In-person classes have been halted at the state universities and colleges in California since March of 2020. Robbie, some public health officials are describing the J&J pause as very positive relative to gaining public trust. I have seen other public officials, experts who are a little bit upset with the pause saying it erodes trust and gives people the perception that it perhaps was approved too soon initially. I even saw one say that Every drug has risks, and if we use the same standards we used when pulling the J&J vaccine over extremely rare risks, when we could just put a warning label on it, we would not have any drugs, including Tylenol. What are your thoughts? Jeremy, as you mentioned, this is a very controversial issue. As we predicted in our last show, the most recent Harris polling has shown a growing reluctance among people to get vaccinated as a result of the issues related to the J&J &J vaccine. 
54% of respondents said they wouldn't take the vaccine even if offered. And the negative consequences of the pause were particularly problematic among those people who remain unvaccinated and those in the wait and see category. More than half of these individuals reported being even more hesitant now than they were before the pause. Despite the rarity of the blood clots, 69% of people overall and 80% of those who were hesitant said they were somewhat or very concerned about the risk at the current time. As such, the FDA authorization that was granted last week, along with the warnings that came with it, will be helpful in efforts to reach populations that are difficult to vaccinate. For these individuals, the one-shot benefit and fewer requirements for transportation of the vaccine itself will be very positive. But acceptance of the J&J vaccine by other people will face major resistance when one of the other approved vaccines is easily available. You've recently written about the impact of COVID-19 on healthcare workers. Can you update listeners on what's going on with this? More than a year after the pandemic began, three in 10 healthcare professionals say they're considering leaving the profession, citing stress and burnout as the reason. In the article I wrote in Forbes, I described the experiences of some of the physicians in critical care medicine who provide the medical care to the sickest of COVID-19's victims. I described a doctor who told me he lost four patients in one day, a resident who started the month with six COVID-19 patients in the ICU, all of whom were dead by the end of the rotation, and a highly resilient physician who now couldn't sleep at night and woke up covered in sweat each morning before the sun rose. As in so many areas, the impact of this pandemic is far broader and likely to last longer than people realize today. And in no area is the risk greater than when it comes to people's mental health. We've talked in this show many times about the impact it has had on people in general, on patients who have had COVID, and the impact on the providers of care, the doctors and the nurses in the hospitals and critical care units will be equally great. I think the same type of psychological challenge, the PTSD that we've seen after soldiers return from battle, we will be seeing in healthcare professionals who have battled this virus now for over 12 months. Robbie, pretty much everyone I know is either fully vaccinated or partially vaccinated or planning to be, regardless of political affiliation. I recently talked to a healthcare worker who works in rural areas of Iowa, and he said that there's a, still quite a bit of distrust and pushback when it comes to getting the COVID vaccine, and they don't plan on getting it, at least not for a while, as they're still a little bit worried about potential long-term side effects. Some are even worried that some of the misinformation going around, such as a microchip being in the vaccine, could be true. I'm also hearing there is still significant pushback and reluctance in minority communities who feel distrust. Also, people who outright refuse to be vaccinated 
no matter what, in many wealthy suburban areas, among your traditional anti-vaccine people that follow the Jenny McCarthy, uh, Jim Carrey, Andrew Wakefield school of thought. How much of this hesitancy in some people and outright anti-vaccine sentiment in others is widespread across the nation, and how widespread is it? Jeremy, we are reaching a tipping point nationally, not just in Iowa. With the percentage of people who remain unvaccinated and are hesitant to take the vaccine rising, and now becoming actually the majority of those who have yet to receive a single dose. Researchers from Civic Science compared willingness to be vaccinated among those who, as I say, remain unvaccinated each week from December 14th to April 20th. Four months ago in December, 50% of people said they would get the vaccine as soon as possible, while only 10% of those who were unvaccinated said they would definitely refuse. And the other 40% in the middle were in this wait and see and uncertain categories. Now among the unvaccinated, nearly 40%, not 10%, 40% are in the never category, while less than 20% are in the right away. That means as a nation, we're about to have more vaccine than people wanting to receive it. And that may make herd immunity impossible to achieve, particularly with the growth in the prevalence of the more transmissible mutants. Already the British B117 is the most common strain in the US and two California COVID-19 variants have been shown by researchers from UCSF to be 20% more contagious than the original COVID-19 coronavirus. According to Axios, in focus groups, people who have refused vaccination so far are becoming even more adamant about their stance. Most say that the recent talk about needing booster shots has made them even more reluctant to begin the process, with a majority now saying they would want a fake vaccination card if restrictions were placed, limiting their freedom based solely on the vaccination status. I think that we are at a point now where urging the hesitant to step forward, to recognize the opportunities and the minimal risks involved will be the big challenge for our country. But if we can overcome it, we should be able to curb this virus, at least until a mutant variant comes to shore. Robbie, in a previous episode, we talked about long COVID, and a listener asked, is anything new on that front? Jeremy, the long-term consequences of COVID-19 are becoming clearer, and they are extremely worrisome. People who had COVID-19, including those who had a mild case, are at serious health risks, and the results will have long-term medical consequences for millions of people years into the future. A study from the highly respected journal Nature demonstrated that between one and six months after recovering from COVID-19, among patients who did not require hospitalization, people had a 60% higher risk of dying than people who had not been infected at all. 
And this group, remember, these are the ones who did not require hospitalization. They did require 20% more medical care overall. And in another study published by the CDC, 69% of people who hadn't been hospitalized as a result of their coronavirus infection sought medical care in the subsequent six months, with two thirds of them receiving a new primary diagnosis. Robbie, our good news segment is valued by listeners looking for something positive in the pandemic. What's good this week? Jeremy, the first encouraging news is that Europe will reopen to American tourists this summer, at least for those tourists who are fully vaccinated. And the 27 nations who are part of the European Union will accept any of the three currently approved U.S. vaccines as demonstrating immunity. Discussions are underway about possible vaccination certificates and the ones which will be adequate for proof. We can expect that an agreement will be reached between the United States and, e and the EU. Whether it will be paper, electronic, or both, we have yet to see. Of interest, one of the factors that the European Union said they will be monitoring to see if easy access will continue will be the overall rate of infection in the United States. And according to European authorities, our nation's progress to herd immunity is the major driver for the reason they've decided to open their borders and ease the restrictions. Of course, that all is happening along with the dependence of many of the nations on American tourism. Already the EU has begun the process providing what they call digital green certificates authenticating vaccination for their citizens. People can qualify not only by having been vaccinated, but also by having had a proven case of COVID-19 or a recent negative test for the coronavirus. These guidelines are expected to allow people to travel between the 27 nations without added restrictions in the very near future. And another piece of good news, West Virginia will give $100 savings bonds to residents of the state, age 16 to 35, who get vaccinated. And this comes from the state's Republican governor, Jim Justice. Jeremy, it seems to me that this approach is much better than the offer by Krispy Kreme to provide free donuts in return for being vaccinated. Robbie, as you know, Living in the swing state of Iowa, I'm in the midst of a constant debate between people who favor a strong government role to limit the spread and those who believe health decisions should be an individual choice. Uh, in a previous show, we compared California to Florida. What about Texas and California? As you know, California and Texas are the two most populous states in the nation. And both have large Latino populations, estimated to be about 40% in each state. So far, they pursued very distinct approaches to the virus. Although in both states, vaccination has been encouraged by elected officials. To date, vaccination rates for Latinos are similar in the two states, with California at 22% and Texas at 21%. But in both cases, these rates are half of the state's overall vaccination rate. And that's a statistic that worries health experts since there's an 8.5 times higher mortality for Latinos aged 20 to 54 than whites in the same age bracket. 
The reason for the discrepancy in vaccination rates among Latinos compared to the state's overall numbers was the decision in both states to vaccinate older people before younger ones, rather than including mortality rates from COVID-19 by race and ethnicity as additional factors. Overall, Texas appears to have done a better job at reaching vulnerable populations, at least according to the CDC, with Texas being ranked seventh best in the country and California being placed fifth worst in the nation. At the same time, California seems to be doing a little better than Texas when it comes to overall vaccination rates, with 49% of people having received at least one dose in California compared to only 43% in Texas. However, some of this difference may reflect the brutal storms that hit Texas earlier this year, stopping vaccination centers from opening for several days, since the two geographies were almost identical before the storms hit. Probably the biggest difference is in terms of infection and death rates. California is now at 52.7 cases per 100,000 people and 1.8 deaths per 100,000 people, while Texas is at 73.3 cases, but only 1.5 deaths. The difference in infection rate reflects the state's policies with mask mandates and social distancing requirements being the rule in California, but not in Texas. Looking at the data, most likely the gap in infection rates reflects increased transmission in younger individuals in Texas, given the added freedoms that they were allocated, but the equivalent mortality rates demonstrate the efforts by older and more at risk people to protect themselves even when they were not mandated to do so. Although Texas eliminated statewide mask requirements on March the 10th, the Republican governor, Greg Abbott, still urges residents to use them on a voluntary basis. When I put the pieces together and compare California and Texas when it comes to the success in managing COVID-19, I'd say it's a draw. Jeremy, we've talked in coronavirus the truth for months now about the sacrifices people have made to limit their risk of contracting COVID-19. What is your personal level of comfort and that of the people in Iowa that you speak to when it comes to each of the following? Air travel, dining in restaurants, and attending sports events. Robbie, it has been an absolutely crazy uh, last year and a half, and it's insane how much things have changed over that year. When coronavirus first came to the United States, I, like everyone else, had seen the viral videos from China or Northern Italy and got a bit freaked out. I told my employees we could all go 100% remote, and they didn't need to come into the office anymore. I went a long time with only leaving the house to get groceries or to go in the office at night when I knew the building was pretty empty. I was extremely cautious at first. You know, I was never one to wear a mask outside walking my dogs with no one else around or reading a book in the park, but I was always good about washing my hands and social distancing and taking the proper precautions. That being said, like many people I know, I slowly got sloppier and sloppier following the precautions. I have not been on a plane since before the pandemic or been to a sporting event like, I mean, they haven't had any. Um, I did finally go to a restaurant last month for a business meeting and have gone a couple times since. I get my second dose of the vaccine next week. And honestly, after I'm fully vaccinated, 
I am beyond excited to have a return to my normal life. I'll be fully ready to go to football games and fly on an airplane, go to the bar, all of it. I know from a mental health perspective, this pandemic has been hard on me and everyone else I know, and any sort of return to normalcy will be a massive breath of fresh air from a mental health perspective. I know this sounds cheesy, but I think my first beer and brat in an Iowa Hawkeye football tailgate party with friends will be an oddly emotional experience and will probably be the best meal I've had in over a year. Robbie, a friend heard that doctors and hospitals would now begin to start charging out-of-pocket fees for COVID-19 related care, something that hasn't been the case for the past year. Is this true? Jeremy, unfortunately, the answer is yes. Around 88% of people were told last year by their insurance companies that they would not be required to pay anything for doctor's visits, hospital stays, or medications when they came for COVID-19 medical care. More recently, large insurers such as Anthem, Aetna, United, and many of the Blues said they would no longer waive these out-of-pocket fees. Most likely these insurers agreed last year not to require out-of-pocket payments due to a combination of wanting to encourage people to come for care and the huge profits they were earning due to the majority of patients avoiding expensive procedures for everything else like total joint replacements out of fear of contracting the coronavirus. With more and more people being vaccinated, we've already seen a major increase in people's willingness to come for routine medical care and the profits therefore the insurance companies could go down dramatically in 2021. Listeners, however, should remember that by federal law, providers can't charge the patient for COVID-19 testing since that is mandated by the federal government and that shouldn't change, at least in the near future. Robbie, a state that has been hit very hard recently in terms of number of cases, hospitalizations and deaths has been Michigan, and they've had some of the toughest restrictions in the country. How can you explain that? Jeremy, as with so many questions when it comes to COVID-19, seemingly simple and straightforward issues have multiple answers and continued uncertainty. One contributing factor in Michigan is the large number of cases resulting from the more transmissible coronavirus variant that began in the United Kingdom. That prevalence is most likely random and relates to when people were infected with the variant. And it probably started to spread in Michigan earlier than in other states. And of course, there could be super spreader events that accelerated the process. When you put the pieces together with a statewide vaccination rate that is average, which is where Michigan is, ranking number 27 in the nation, and you combine that with higher rates of transmissible virus, but only average vaccine protection, you can just calculate that the number of infected people will surge upward. And that is part of what has happened. But in addition, what we've seen is that states with high infection rates in the past are likely to have lower ones in the future because so many people develop immunity from the virus itself. And this is something we've seen in multiple geographies with infection rates starting to approach 40% and now new infection rates 
declining and being relatively low. As an example, at the start of 2021, Los Angeles County had two to three times higher rates of COVID-19 cases than any other county in the United States. But now, according to the CDC, it has one of the lowest infection rates per capita among the 10 most populous counties in the United States. How much of this success in Los Angeles County reflects post-infection immunity, which is now estimated to be as high as 40% of people, versus the impact of the new California variants that, as we said earlier in the show, were 20% more transmissible than the original virus, but therefore much less than the one from the United Kingdom, which has been estimated to be 40 to 50% more transmissible from person to person. We can't separate out these different factors, each of which is changing at different rates across time. Jeremy, the real solution everywhere is vaccination. And I can't encourage listeners any more strongly to begin the process now that all of the states have opened up vaccination accessibility to people of all ages. You know, last year we talked a lot and we stressed the Pareto principle. Do the 20% of things that add 80% of the value. I had to guess vaccination provides more than 90% of the value with risks that are minuscule. Are vaccines perfect? The answer is no. But are they better than all of the other alternatives combined? My answer is yes, and by a huge margin. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. Thank you very much for listening to Coronavirus The Truth, and have a great day.